Good to see you this morning. Glad you have made it. In Romans chapter 13, verse number 7, the scripture tells us that we owe honor to whom honor is due. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Bible tells us that we are to recognize those who labor among us and who admonish us, those who have served in that kind of capacity are to be recognized, to be noted. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says this, verse number 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And with those three verses of Scripture, I thought that I would share with you to justify uh, the small honor that I would like for the church to bestow upon uh, our deacon, James Widgen, who uh, retired from that post at the end of January and uh, I have been planning to, on behalf of the church, give him a gift uh, for some time. And uh, it took me a little while to figure out just what that should be. But uh, we did do that with uh, some secret consultations. And uh, it's, not, it's not too fancy, but it is a gift uh, certificate for our brother. And uh, it's a really just a small token of our thanksgiving, James, for your service to the church. And uh, I know you'd probably rather not have me saying this right now, but um, sometimes the pastor has to say things people don't want him to say. (laughs) Uh, So with that, I just want to say that uh, our church is so thankful for the ministry that you have extended and continue to give to us over these many years. Brother James, uh, I don't know exactly uh, when he started serving as a deacon with Pastor Sachs, but uh, it's well uh, over three decades back. And so that service does uh, require some kind of recognition to at least be, uh, you know, express human gratefulness. And so I want to do that this morning with this gift, and so I'll just ask Brother James if he would come, and I will present this to him. It's nothing fancy, like I said, but uh, it should provide him some, something nice for himself after all these years of giving. Brother? Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. God bless you. Now, if you would turn your Bibles, please, to Isaiah. We are reading in Isaiah... And chapter uh, 31, actually, I was reading, when I was reading chapter 30, uh, I had forgotten that chapter 31 is even more pointed about this lesson of going down to Egypt. And so we're going to look at that, and uh, chapter 31 is quite short, so I'll add 32 to it as well. It says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. 
but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster, and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now, the Egyptians are men, and not God, and their horses are flesh, and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, both he who helps will fall, and he who is helped will fall down. They will perish together. So you go to Egypt, Israel, both of you are going down. Verse number four, for thus the Lord has spoken to me, as a lion roars and a young lion over his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is summoned against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor be disturbed by their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight for Mount Zion and for its hill. Like birds flying about, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending, he will also deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. Return to him against whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall throw away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, sin, which your own hands have made for yourselves. Think of that. People make sin for themselves. Then Assyria shall fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of mankind shall devour him. But he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall become forced labor. He shall cross over to his stronghold for fear, and his princes shall be afraid of the banner, says the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Verse, or chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. Now we're talking about the messianic kingdom now. And princes will rule with justice. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind. Now, I want, I want you to listen to this very carefully now. Listen to this verse. This is going to blow you away. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock within a weary land. Now, where do we know that phrase from? That's a hymn, isn't it? Doesn't it call forth a hymn in your mind? And who, what is that hymn speaking of? God, isn't it? He is the shadow of a mighty rock in a weary land. This is not speaking of God. This is speaking of men. In that day, God will set people not to be false shepherds, not to be false teachers, not to be unjust rulers, but he will set them to be just rulers, as it said in verse 1, princes will rule with justice. They will stand up for those who need justice, and they will be like the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. People will be that. That's the kind of people we need today. Somebody who is like a rock and will not, will not move when some people want him to do injustice. Somebody who will stand firm and do what is right. Verse 3, the eyes of those who see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Now, that could be easily misunderstood, I think, to refer to somebody who uh, has eye problems or hearing problems, but this is a spiritual hearing and spiritual eye problem. Remember back in the beginning of Isaiah, God will make their ears dull, their eyes will not see, that's a spiritual issue. Now, that's this in this time, it's going to be fixed. Why? Because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. 
and uh, all of the people will know him. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. For the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also, the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a year and some days you will be troubled, you complacent women. So now he's moving back to a near term. For the vintage will fail, the gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourselves bare, and gird sackcloth on your waists. People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars. Yes, on all the happy homes in the joyous city. Because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted, the forts and towers will become lairs forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Though hail comes down on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation, blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. Well, I can't wait to see that blessed future time in world history. Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would please, this morning. We do encourage you to have that Bible in front of you and be follow along, following along with the verses that we are looking at. This is Resurrection Part 3 today. I was uh, just happened to receive an, an email from uh, somebody who was uh, reading my THM dissertation on counterfactuals, and uh, this is maybe a week or more ago, and he reminded me of that and was just, um, you know, asking if I would look at an article he wrote on the same subject, which I began to, and then I, I lost uh, steam, and I had to go back to that uh, highly philosophical topic. I don't really, I, I do know how I got into that, but I don't really know how in another sense, because it's not really my my cup of tea, uh, the whole uh, philosophical theology side of it. But I was reminded when I uh, opened my, my uh, document in which I had written on that subject that it is quite an interesting subject. And I had quoted there at some length an author who was a best-selling author named Nicholas Taleb who wrote a book called The Black Swan. And um, that book... Uh, was quite influential. But what he said that I want to use this morning in that was, and, and this fellow is not a Christian, so you know, don't, I'm not advocating for everything he's written or said, but 
He said this interesting thing from an evolutionary mindset. The ability of humans, he argued, to think of and think through counterfactual statements is a very helpful evolutionary tool. Because, he said, we can allow our suppositions, our counterfactuals, to die in our place. He illustrated this way. He said, um, instead of just going up to a guy and punching him in the nose, you might ask yourself, what would happen if I punch him in the nose? Either A, he will punch me back, or B, he will call his lawyer in New York, which would be even worse. So I'm not going to punch him because that would not be a good outcome for me. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. But he's just illustrating that by a funny example to say, you know, if I do this, you know, dumb thing, you know, say some dumb thing that some, you know, teenager, teenage boy or early 20s young man would do, uh, if I do that, I could harm myself. I think I will not do that. That's what he's talking about when he's saying that you think about a counterfactual and you think about the outcome of that, and then you say, wait a minute, I'm not going to go there. And we have actually something connected to that in our message this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you'd let your eyes go down to verse number 12. It says this, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. There's the counterfactual statement. What is a counterfactual? It's something that if the thing was true, then the consequence would follow, but the if is not true, so it's counter to the actual facts of reality. But if there is, he says again, verse 13, no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. I don't want to make the, the case using Paul's argumentation here down to verse 19 this morning that you want to let that counterfactual die in your place, not in a, as a substitute, but die instead of you going down that road. You don't want to go down the road of saying there is no resurrection of the dead because if you go down that road, you will find out what the end of that doctrine is. And when you face your resurrection and final judgment before God, you will be one sad customer that you denied the resurrection of Christ. So as we think about this, and the whole section here, eight verses, is about this counterfactual and its implications. You know, you might think, well, that's kind of negative. Or maybe somebody would say, look, that's what it says. Let's move on to verse 20. That's the good stuff. But I want us to focus on this for a couple of reasons this morning that hopefully you'll see in the conclusion of the message, that we really ponder what it means if we take the resurrection of Christ lightly or we deny it altogether. Paul preached Christ. Key to that proclamation was that Jesus raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And this is the foundation upon which all of Christianity rests. It is essential. It is fundamental. It is central. It's whatever important word you want to call it. It is what Christianity is. But there were some in Corinth who denied that there was such a thing as a resurrection at all of anyone at any time. This was an attack on the doctrine of resurrection and an attack on Christianity in general. They did not limit this to the 
individual believer. They made a sweeping statement that included Jesus Christ in their denial and everybody else. This was a denial of Christianity itself and of the hope of the New Testament and Old Testament believer. Remember, the resurrection is not a new doctrine in the New Testament. Old Testament believers knew of it, although they might have seen it a little more darkly uh, as, in a, uh, as in a dark mirror, you know, from 1 Corinthians 13, I'm pulling that phrase. They might have seen it a little darkly, more darkly than we do, but they saw it. Isaiah saw it, Ezekiel saw it, Job saw it way back in Job chapter 19. He's going to see his Redeemer live in his stand, from the standpoint of his own flesh. He will see him. So the doctrine of resurrection is the hope of the nation of Israel. It's the hope of the Christian church. It is if you don't have it. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, you have a serious, serious problem. Let me read the rest of the text after verse 13. It says, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Yes, we also are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are are of all men the most pitiable, the most miserable some translations have. Now this error is like another error that Paul wrote about uh, just because it touches on the same doctrine, the doctrine of resurrection, but it's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, you can turn there if you wish. I'll just read a couple verses from this section, 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18. Paul says to Timothy, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Now this verse is an excellent verse to remind us that there are certain things that we should just not bother talking about. It's just going to lead to problems. It's just going to be ungodliness. It's going to be an argument. It's false doctrine or whatever it is. Think about this verse. There are some things that we should just not talk about. But, verse 17 says, and their message will spread like cancer. So here we're really talking about false teaching in the church or in society. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. They're saying the resurrection is a past event. Now, that's different than what we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians 15, where the doctrine is there is no resurrection, period, at all. But here, the, the idea was the resurrection's already come and gone. Verse 19, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having the seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And one of the iniquities is false teaching about the doctrine of the resurrection, that Paul is calling out there, either that it's already passed or that it doesn't happen at all or, you know, there's this just think about the cults and the doctrine of resurrection that they hold. Spiritual resurrection, Christ has already come back, he hasn't raised from the, from the dead bodily, um, all kinds of variations of false teaching about the doctrine of resurrection. Remember we said in our introduction to this doctrine, resurrection talks about a bodily revivification, a bodily being brought back to life. It's not a spirit 
by which I mean immaterial thing. It's not a ghost coming back to life. It's a real, full coming back to life. The opening question that Paul poses is about this teaching that's contradictory to this critical truth. And he says this, If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, and that is true, Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? How do some false teachers among you say that? That is utter rebellion against what God is saying. How can someone inside the church actually say this out loud? How can they actually really believe that? How in the world can you contradict the basic truth of how you became to be a Christian and how this church came into existence? Are you actually in the church? That's where 2 Timothy 2.19 comes into play. God knows those who are his, and if somebody is denying the doctrine of resurrection of Christ and of everyone else, then what Paul is saying is the Lord knows that you are not his, and you are not in his family. So the fact that you're in the church should be no comfort to you. You you really don't belong there. You're not one of our type of people. You don't hold our kind of belief. And this thing happens, this kind of thing happens today. People associated with the church in some way, in some loose fashion or in name only, hold wildly errant beliefs. They must be called out as Paul does here. And these are things that, you know, God willing, in our church we would never have happen. But if you happen to be in another church sometime in the future or perhaps you were in one in the past, and you had this sort of thing going on, it's, this is not something that you don't deal with. Did I say that right? It's something you must deal with. It's, you know, people don't want to deal with hard things because it's not polite. Or you will be accused of attacking somebody for their beliefs. Or um, it's rude. You know, just ignore it. But rather, we would say on this kind of matter, it's necessary that we deal with it. Because if we don't, we're going to allow some people to end up going to eternal condemnation by believing their false doctrine or the false teacher's doctrine. And you know, that's not polite to let somebody go to hell. Is it? That's not polite. So get over the politeness and the rudeness and being canceled and all that sort of stuff. Forget it. Teach the truth and help people to know the truth. So now what Paul does next is he lays out this counterfactual thought experiment, this thought experiment that we're going to let die instead of us dying to show how ridiculous the no resurrection theology is. And he's going to give us eight consequences of this idea. Now sometimes a doctrine is wrong, but it doesn't, affect a lot of other things. Maybe it's, you know, kind of in an isolated corner of the theological system. I don't think that there are maybe many of these such doctrines or there are some that touch other things, but they can kind of be isolated off in a in a little area where they're not too damaging. But then there are ones like this that touch everything. 
They touch everything. And they are wrong in a deadly sort of way, which wreaks havoc throughout the Christian theological system. The no resurrection idea is one of those heresies. It's extremely serious. It is very dangerous. So Paul starts out with a supposition, this counterfactual, assume true for the sake of argument. It's not true, but assume true for the sake of argument. And this is just what the false teachers in Corinth were saying. There's no resurrection of the dead. Let's suppose that's true. If there is no resurrection of the dead at all, then that means Christ is not risen. Easter is gone. Christ fits into the universal category of anyone at any time. They're saying that there's no such thing as a being, uh, a human being, being brought back to life out of the realm of the dead. Dead people stay dead. You know, they say, when's the last time you saw a dead person rise? Sounds plausible to the young mind in school. You know, when's the last time you saw a black swan? Go back to that title that I alluded to even last week and again this morning. You know, they say in their minds, uh, nobody rises from the dead. Jesus is still dead. What a sad thought. A way to think that Jesus is dead. After having been taught that he rose again from the dead, after having been taught the historical reality of his resurrection, after having been shown dozens and hundreds of witnesses that he is alive and you deny it, Verse 16 says the same again, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Why does Paul say that again? It's so shocking, this this false doctrine, that he has to repeat it. He has to make it clear to the people. Uh, Paul's compelled to raise this issue before the church. And then he follows with all these secondary consequences. If Christ is not risen because of this false doctrine, then, number one, Our preaching is empty, verse 14. The word for empty is kenos, kenos, or kenos. Um, The word kenosis comes from this, the emptying of Christ in Philippians 2. But what Paul's doing is using the word to say our preaching is devoid of spiritual value. In other words, it's, it's made up. It's imaginary. It's useless. Because there's no underlying substance of resurrection, the entire teaching is pointless and without strength to accomplish anything. Paul is preaching that Christ was raised, therefore we will be raised, and therefore we should believe in Christ to deal with the sin issue that looms so large. But if the resurrection is wrong, then everything coming after that point is meaningless. It's dumb. It's imaginary. Second, he says, your faith is empty. Not only is our preaching empty, your faith is the same. Same word, kinos, empty, devoid of spiritual value, meaningless, without basis, if the supposition, the counterfactual, were true. So our preaching is empty. Your faith is empty if Christ is not raised. Thirdly, verse 15, you are found to be false witnesses of God. That is, Paul is a liar if Christ is not raised, because he's testifying that he is raised, which could not happen if the dead do not rise. So it's even worse than Paul speaking nonsense or imaginary things. He's actually actively lying to the people. 
And perhaps he's doing so consciously, if that supposition were true, misleading the people that he was teaching. If that is the case, then Paul would be no better than the medical quack who offers a placebo, knowing that it's a placebo for people's cancer just to help them feel better on their way to the grave. Or the recent doctor uh, charged with giving real cancer drugs to patients who did not, in fact, have cancer because he wanted to charge Medicare for the treatment of cancer patients, which was which was lucrative for him until he was found out, and then it became very non-lucrative for him, thankfully. But that's what Paul would be like if he were peddling a false teaching, that there is a resurrection when there were not, or was not a resurrection. Perhaps Paul was no better than them just wanting to make money, an itinerant money grubber. If Paul was a liar then so are we, aren't we? If he teaches a lie, we teach a lie as well. Number four, secondary consequence of this false doctrine, we find it in verse number 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Your faith is futile. This is basically the same as saying it's empty. It's mataya. It means something like ineffective, uh, something that is not really what it is made out to be. It's like a cloud without water. It's like a tree that promises but does not bear fruit. It's empty. Promises but cannot deliver because of some inherent systemic flaw. And here the promise is that it promises resurrection for us, assuming that the supposition controlling the section of Paul's letter, though, is true, then it cannot deliver on that promise. And also in verse 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. This is probably the most scary to me of all of this. One central promise of the faith is this, that your sins will be washed away if you believe in Christ. This can be promised because Christ died for our sins and rose again, demonstrating that his death did something more than just what a normal human being death does. We all die. My death is not propitiatory for my sins or anyone else's sins. So something else had to happen with Christ, and that is that he had to rise from the dead to show that his, his work was finished, it was accomplished, it was acceptable before God, and he did that. But without Christ rising, our sins are still with us. So the predicament that we would be in is this. It's, it's actually twofold. I'll give you the worse uh, uh, predicament, and I'll give you the worser predicament, okay? <laughs> it's even worse than what I'm about to say. The problem is that as Christians, we have been awakened to our sinfulness, have we not? But if you found out later having been awakened to that sinfulness, that there was no solution for it. It was hopeless. Can you imagine the feeling of that? Oh, we know the guilt of sin and the desire to be rid of it. 
and all of that. But our faith would not be well-founded. Our sins would still be with us if Christ did not rise from the dead. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. But here's how it gets worse. Not only are you still in your sins, you wouldn't even... Because, see, here's the thing. It's a very short step from saying there is no resurrection to saying there is no God. It's basically saying the same thing. And in that small step, we as Christians would have to recognize that if God doesn't exist, then we would never have become awakened to our sins in the first place. Hypothetically, we, we, we are awakened to our sins, but if Christ is not raised, then we, we're in this terrible, horrifying nightmare of a situation in which we know we have sin and, and we're not going to be able to pay for that sin and we're going to die and, and it's going to be awful. But if you think of it, who is the one who awakened you to that sin? And if, God, if there's no resurrection and God doesn't exist, then you haven't even been awakened to the fact of your sin. You don't even know how bad you are. Now, we We'd know, we know something of how bad we are, but of course, Jeremiah says we don't even know the depths of our own wickedness. But the thing is, we know that there is a depth. If there's no God, or if you live like there's no God, you don't even know that there's a depth. You're not awakened to your sin at all. How convenient to deny the resurrection and thus probably to deny God or any kind of practical existence of God and just say, well, well, just live, eat, drink, and be merry. That's, that's the whole outcome of this. You would still be in your sins, and you wouldn't even know it. Verse 18 says, Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Then, as you do this thought experiment with the Apostle Paul, you come to the horrifying realization that all of your loved ones in Christ, that all those people in your church who have died, that all those Christians over the past centuries and millennia who have died are lost and doomed if Christ is not raised from the dead. You thought you were going to see them again, but you're not if Christ is not raised from the dead. Your faith is empty. There's no value to it. It's all a myth. All those who have died in Christ are gone, never to live again, lost in their sins as well. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. There's no hope beyond this life if Christ is not raised. The only hope we can claim is in this life. That's why people grasp, try to hold on to this life so much. They want to live forever. They want to be saved from the virus. They want to be saved from cancer. They have to be. They, 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 they stretch and they work and they do everything they can and we spend trillions of dollars on health care because, well, we all like to be well, but there's some kind of hope there that we're going to reach immortality, kind of like the fountain of youth, right? It's like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow where you're never going to get. Not in the way that we think because we're going to Egypt for our help. We're not going to God for our help. 
But there's no hope in this life, or beyond this life, rather. The only hope is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What a pointless existence that would be. But it's a logical existence if you don't believe in an afterlife, if you don't believe in any resurrection. But there are no consequences to how you live life in this view. How does that seem philosophically correct? No truth, no no vindication, no justice, no righting of wrongs, no, no, no sense of cosmic justice. Live it up, they say, and get as much out of life as you can. Spend all your money now. But there's something that works against that, even underneath all of this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has placed eternity in the hearts of people. As part of the image of God in man, we know there is something beyond us. It's inherent. That's why most of the world has some kind of religious fervor for something. They fill that, that desire for knowledge of eternity with something. Even secularism is a religion. Even evolutionism is a religion. They fill their minds with all of that stuff. They trust in it. But there's no hope if the supposition is true, if the counterfactual is the case. And then finally in verse 19, we are of all men most pitiable. So Paul has laid out eight consequences of the doctrine. If there's no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And if that's the case, eight things are true. We are the most pitiable of all people. People look at us as if we're poor, backward creatures, believing in a myth of a false teaching of a resurrection. And that's what people think of us today, okay? Let them think it, okay? Let them think it. We understand that Christ raised from the dead. He did so truly, historically, actually, factually. False belief on the supposition would cause us to make sacrifices and do things that are totally unnecessary, that is, if Christ is not raised from the dead, why do we do this? Why do you listen to me prattle on some lies? Why do we uh, give our devotion to the Lord? Why do we waste our money giving to the church? Why do we waste our time? Why do we tell other people this, this, this lie that Christ is raised from the dead? You see how central resurrection is to the gospel message? And so if you leave it out, like I alluded to last time, to make the, the, the Christian doctrine more palatable, what you're saying is you don't need resurrection. And Paul's saying if you don't have it, you have nothing. So you must have it. You must have it in your presentation of the gospel. We must confess that Christ has raised from the dead. So some people do think that we're fools. Let them think that. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The real point is this, that no one is permitted to say that they believe in the Christian faith and at the same time deny the resurrection of the dead. You either take them together or you just abandon it altogether. Okay? Make your stand on the, on the doctrine that you believe in, but don't try to be in both camps. Forget it. Don't play around. Okay? If you're going to not believe in the resurrection, just tell us that you're an annihilationist. Just tell us that you're an atheist. Just get it over with. And we already know that, but just be honest about it at least. Now, let's suppose for a moment 
that our belief, according to Romans 10.9, that is, that we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, let's suppose for a moment that that's invalid, that God did not raise Christ from the dead, then if that's invalid, we would not be real Christians, our sins would still be upon us, We know that horrifying thought. Even worse, if there's no resurrection, it would be only a small step to believe that there is no God. We wouldn't have even a clue about how sinful we are, about how bad we are. Maybe there wouldn't even be really a standard of good and evil. Because if there's no God, there is no standard. It's just whatever society decides. And isn't that what people think today? God is the decider of what's right and wrong. He's placed some of that in our conscience, but our consciences have been so seared and they start from kindergarten on up trying to sear that conscience these days, fill people with all kinds of false doctrine. And so we wouldn't even know it if there was no God or there was no resurrection. But let me ask a more practical question. This is all kind of philosophical, counterfactuals, you know, all this sort of stuff. You say, well, how does this relate to my day-to-day existence? How would your day-to-day life look different if you believed there is no resurrection? Would there be any practical difference to how you live today if you believe there is no resurrection? Can I say it this way? You all believe there is a resurrection from the dead. Does your life show that? How would you live differently if there were no resurrection? Do you live in practice the same way as if you would live if there were no resurrection? Or is there really a difference? Put it another way. What does the resurrection of Christ have an impact on how you live Monday through Saturday? In what way can people tell that you believe in the resurrection of Christ? How does it change your conduct? How does it change your outlook? on everything. How does it change? How is it impacting how you live Monday through Saturday? Do you handle COVID in a specifically Christian way? Or is the way you handle it exactly like the world around you? You see the issue? Does the resurrection have any impact on how you think about COVID? Or how you deal with it as an individual, as a family, as a church, how you deal with it psychologically, how you deal with it physically. Does the resurrection have any impact or none? Do you handle it in a in practice and thought just like everyone else in the world? I wonder if we really believe in the resurrection or if we kind of don't. Is the supposition more true practically in our lives than what we would like to admit? Do you handle trials differently than the world because of your knowledge of the resurrection of Christ? Do you approach your work with a different perspective because of the resurrection of Christ? Do you approach living for the Lord with a resurrection mindset, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord according to the end of this very chapter in which we're studying? Or is there no difference at all? 
So these verses are not just, I think, an attack on those who deny the resurrection, but a reminder for us that we better not practically deny the resurrection of Christ and act as if it doesn't exist or it doesn't have any impact on us or or whatever. This becomes clear in how we deal with issues when they come to big trials or end-of-life issues and things like that. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead. This brings us back to reality. The assumption of no resurrection is in fact false. Christians are not the most pitiable. There is hope beyond life. Those who died in Christ before are not lost. Christians are not still in our sins. Our faith is worthwhile. Paul is not a liar and his preaching is full of spiritual value. Let the counterfactual die instead of you dying. Okay, Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege to look at this passage of Scripture. Backwards in a sense, though it is, because it was based on the false supposition of no resurrection, and yet it has instructed us very well, not only about the implications of the no resurrection doctrine, but it has offered us the opportunity to ask ourselves, do we live in practice as if the theology of these false teachers is actually correct? <clears throat> Lord, may we not live that way. May we have great confidence that though we be at the end of our rope. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, our God. Lord, when it comes to facing the end-of-life issues or trials or even just day-to-day living, the resurrection must make a significant impact in how we live. May it have that impact in us. Help us to know how to apply this and ask ourselves, am I living like a person who's going to be resurrected, or am I living like an atheist? Keep us away from that, Lord, that atheism, that practical atheism that people suffer. Help us to live knowing the resurrection of Christ is true, and thus our own resurrection is guaranteed in Jesus' name. Amen.